The Off The Ball Podcast on OTB Sports Radio, Ireland's first and only sports radio station. Now, you're very welcome back. So it's week two of our uh, Sport in Ireland History Odyssey. We have UCD Professor Paul Rouse joining us once again for week two. Paul, how are you doing? Very well, thanks, Joe. Great to have you with us. So in week one, we almost uh, laid out the uh, syllabus in front of us and, and tried to hit on all the various themes we're going to touch on. From here on in, though, we'll be getting into meteor aspects. And the plan for today is for you to talk to us about sport before 1800. Now, I presume that could be a semester all in itself, but we're going to try and cram a general sense of sport before 1800 into the chat. Yes, uh, I suppose there's an element with last week that you have to get it out of the way to line out what you're trying to do in the course and to set out the, the themes of the course. But now it's about looking at the sporting world that emerged by 1800. And that sporting world what, bears many of the hallmarks of the world that we know around us now. So we know that in 1800, there were people playing hurling and football. There were uh, people hunting. There were people engaged in athletics. There were boat races. There were cricket matches. And so on across so many of the things that we now understand that people do as, as activities. There were even the first sporting clubs had already been established by 1800 in Ireland. How far back do we want to go here? Because even uh, those of us who uh, remember junior search history with a certain mm-hmm. resentment will know there are things like primary and secondary sources. So like, how far back can we go here and be on fairly concrete ground? Oh, this is really tricky. Uh, if you look at the modern sporting world and in this new millennium, there is a blizzard of sources that you can use. It's all across the media. Sport is everywhere on radio and television. It's podcasts, it's websites. But it's also to be found in government files, in documents and in reports and in the minute books of organizations. But when you go back to, let's say, 1100 or 1200, what you're looking for are fragments of a story. Now, it's really, really tricky to do this without stepping beyond the boundaries of your evidence. Mm. So what we're kind of going to try and do is to look at the evidence of sport, we'll say in old poetry, in paintings, in ancient Irish manuscripts in the Brehan laws and in those state papers that have um, survived and in the kind of the accounts of, of big houses. Now, as you move through closer to 1800, certainly into the 1700s, there are more books being published. There are travel writers coming into Ireland and writing about what they, what they see. And most importantly, there are the newspapers of the 1700s, okay. which didn't have dedicated sporting sections and didn't have sports journalism. But through their court reports and through other little announcements and advertisements, you can see our modern world of sport beginning to emerge through, through the fog. Say we go back for a second to medieval Ireland. So as I understand that we're talking, say, 5th century through to 8th century, early Christian I would Ireland. say that's a sentence you never thought you would say on, 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 on radio, Joe. There, there are many things happening right now I can't believe are happening, but this is, just, yeah, this is another one of them. So early Christian Ireland through to maybe the Vikings arriving, that kind of period to jog people's um, memory of their history classes. So what do we know? And this is, this is a long time ago. What do we know about what was going on in sporting terms then? Well, there's what we think we know what was going on and there's what people tell us invented about what was going on. Let's talk about, I suppose, first of all, of, about the wide world of popular sport and the world that we know existed. And we can look at it in terms of big public events. So, for example, Donnybrook Fair, um, the 
not to be confused with that rather posh shop on the on the mm-hmm. on the south side of of Dublin. But Donnybrook Fair was established in 1204. The Ritford was given by King John in the same year that he gave the Ritford the establishment of Dublin Castle. Ireland had newly been had been newly colonised by the English, and part of this was the establishment of formal structure. So Donnybrook Fair is the first example of these great public fairs, commercial events that took place around the country. Now, if you look at Donnybrook Fair, it was held on the, on the outskirts of Dublin and it was to be an eight-day commercial event where people came and sold their wares, but very quickly around it developed all manner of sporting uh, events. So people began to run each other in, in, or to race each other in, in running. They began to have throwing competitions and jumping competitions and it became a venue for, for cockfighting. And over the two, three, four, five hundred years that followed, the number of fairs in Ireland multiplied to the extent that by about 1800, there were more than 1,200 fairs being held around the countryside. And in all of those fairs and on those fair greens, sporting events took place either during the fair or on the greens when the fair fairs were over. So these are hugely popular. They're all over the country as well as uh, people running and racing. I know from the notes you sent on, there are things like uh, shin kicking, swimming horses uh, struck me as an interesting one as well. Uh, stone throwing, I can, I can guess what that is. Uh, tug of war, all that kind of stuff. See, what happened with the fairs was happening at the same time with what were called pattern days. Now, pattern days, pattern is a corruption of, of patron which means a local patron saint's holy day. So there were holy days all around the countryside and holy days, of course, becomes holiday. And what this was, was a day of leisure for people. And on these days of leisure, and unfair, days of leisure and unfair days, people engaged in all manner of popular recreation, from those running and jumping games to playing football and, and, and hurling, uh, to racing horses and swimming horses. In Loch Owl and Westmead, for example, they used to put, bring horses into the loch and um, of course, the horse was out of his comfort zone and unthrown, and only the most skilled rider would survive on them. Um, but in all of these days, there was a wide um, festival of people enjoying themselves. So shin kicking is a great example. I stand in front of you. I'm 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 standing a, a foot, foot and a half away from you, and it's we toss to see who goes first, and uh, you win, and you get to kick me as hard as you can in 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 the shins, and. Uh, then I get my go, and it's it's last man standing is is the winner. Now I'm not sure that I'm not sure that there isn't pain in victory as well as pain in uh, yeah. pain in defeat. Then they had grinning competitions and grimacing competitions. So a grimacing competition is who can make the ugliest face uh, to to win um, to win the competition. They had dancing competitions where the last person left dancing on the stage, i.e., the fittest person, yeah. uh, is is the winner, and and so on. And of course, there I mean, was I'm, faction fighting. I've got to be honest here. This all sounds like self-isolation. All of these sports are happening in houses up and down the country now. If you're kicking my shin, do I just have to present my shin to you and not move and you give it your best shot? Well, I think you, you just you just got to take it, Joe. And, Can I, and I see any evasion allowed, I wonder. You know, no, no, no. Of... You stand there and you take the kick. And, and it's about, a, it's, it's, it's about the our, our, our manliness and, yeah. and our pain well, threshold. Yeah. Or are, are you, not to make this gender specific, I'm sure women could indulge in kick, shin kicking if they wanted. Well, this is really interesting in the, in the sporting world. It was sport for all, depending on the sport. Right. But also, there were also, as time went on, 
when men were having running races that were considered to be novelty races for women. So women might race for a smock or a hat or something like that, whereas men's competition was already seen to be, yeah. to be more important and, and um, more central to, to how people did things. So these fairs, you know, this kind of period, maybe 1300s, 1400s on, and they become incredibly popular up to the period we're going to end this conversation on, which is 1800. What about the likes of uh, football or hurling or the more uh, popular kind of mundane sports of today? Okay, so we'll start with football. Football um, in Ireland, you can find mention of football in the statute of Galway in 1527 when there was records of people playing football there was football in a, a football field was laid out of the school in County Down in 1620 and there is evidence from court reports and later from newspaper reports from the 1700s of football being played by groups of groups of men and it was men um, in various areas so for example it normally only made the papers in the 1700s when there was a fight at it mm. or when there was around it. So, for example, there were riots at Finglas in the 1770s um, when a man got his skull broken and uh, his nose part- partially taken off uh, during a football match. Similarly, in Kildare in 1792, there was there rioting. So it, it usually only made the papers in the event of, of there being trouble at, at matches. But there is other evidence which suggests that that's just the tip of the iceberg that for all the games that ended up in trouble and you get a picture of a sporting world that's violent and dangerous and nasty there are many many more games at which there is no affray that nobody gets injured and that people just are engaged in in recreation and not in anything else so for example in 1746 there's a match in in parsons town in 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 king's county which of course is now borough county offaly where uh, the Parsons family uh, sponsored a game and threw in the ball to, st- to start the game. And then most famously of all from the 1800s, or from the 1700s, a man called Matt Concannon wrote a match called, wrote a poem called Match at Football, which, is, uh, which was published in 1720. And it's about a football match that took place on a stretch of ground that people will be well familiar with. It's Oxman Town Green. So if, you, if you're driving along the quays from Houston Station towards the city centre, it's just on your left uh, around the, the place where the National Museum is now, just on the left-hand side there. That was a huge, long, green area which was used for sport in the 1700s. And Matthew Concannon wrote a poem about a match being played there between the men of Lusk and the men of Swords. And so many of the things that we now associate with football matches are apparent in that game. So, for example, number one, the Lusk men and the Swords men despised each other, and that's written <laughs> in the poem. They really wanted to beat each other. Number two, they're referred to as being experienced players and, and being able to play because of their practice over the years. So this is not something that they just turn up and it's a random event. It's something that's part of a structure. There is talk about the players being led onto the field by pipers and led around the place, of the crowd around the rope, around it going wild at every score, about people drinking and grambling along the sidelines and of the tackling being ferocious uh, throughout the whole spread of the game wow. so this tells you that football yeah. football and the word football really matters here i know there's a, a whole colonization of that word of football and fo- the word football means a different thing to people in america to australia to to england to ireland and even within ireland 
I say football and I mean Gaelic football. You say football, which are football show, and you mean soccer. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it, it's this word football. What did it mean in 1700? And what it meant in 1700 was that there was no single set of rules used even across Ireland for any one game. There are localized agreed rules. It doesn't mean it's anarchic. It doesn't mean that, that what they played was not something that was played to a structure. It just means it was an agreed structure around the time. And it, wasn't, it didn't run right all across, all across the, the countryside. So the word football yeah. is used to describe folk football all across um, Ireland and indeed Britain and across Europe. And the idea that there was a Gaelic football, for example, is nonsense. Fascinating, yeah. And in this uh, report of the Lusk men against the Swordsmen, were there any blanket defences or puke football? Well, it seems to have gone up and down. There was six aside, actually, so it was probably pretty, uh, pretty, pretty open. And um, it, it, it's, uh, it's the festivities afterwards seem to have attracted a lot of people yeah. as well. And this is the one thing when you see from these football matches in the 1700s, teams were sponsored uh, and barrels of ale were put up for the winning team or, or, or whiskey and, and so on. So it was, it's many of the, uh, the, 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 the things that surround our modern game are visible at that stage. Okay. So look, some things never change and uh, football here deals in reality of what was happening, whereas hurling uh, likes to mythologize a little bit and uh, continues to this day. There are no cynical fouls in hurling, for instance. What were the myths of hurling back uh, pre-1800? Oh, this gets, this, um, this is where it gets slightly complicated. So there is this notion that hurling that the first people who made land in Ireland basically arrived with hurls in their hands and that the game has been part of our culture from the very beginning, that every weekend, weekend after weekend, year after year, century after century, the Gael stood in the field and hurled ball uh, up and down um, a time again. And there is evidence, and I'll come to the evidence in a minute, there is evidence which extends back a thousand years for stick and ball play in, in, in Ireland. It can be found, for example, in uh, the archaeologist, a brilliant archaeologist in, in UCD, Aidan O'Sullivan, who's written about the archaeology of hurling. And you can see it as well in, in Clodagh Doyle's exhibition in the National Museum, where she looks at this old hurling ball pulled out of the bogs, a series of hurling balls found in bogs around Ireland. And there's one that has been carbon dated to the late 12th century. That's how old the old hurling ball is. And there's a hurley found from the late 16th century in Derry's in, in, in Offaly and so on. So there is evidence there. There's evidence in poetry. So, for example, Guffrey Fiona Dolly, when he became, was a poet writing in 1366, advising a person who was taking over the leadership of a clan that it was time for him now to throw down the hurley and take up the sword, that his life, he was no longer a boy, that he was now a man. You can see it in Brehen Law where there was a certain code of payment uh, and redress if somebody got injured playing hurling and there are fines on it. So there is evidence there of hurling being played, but what is hurling? So this is where you get into myth. And I need to take a sidestep here. For Something happened in the 19th century when people who got interested in ancient Irish manuscripts and in, and in, um, in the translation of those manuscripts into English and into modern Irish. And you can see it all across various things that happened. So for example, it happened with chess. People found all board games 
uh, that are mentioned in these old Irish texts and translated them as meaning Phil, which means chess. Now, they did this because they wanted to construct the idea that the Irish were not barbarians as they were portrayed routinely by the English in the 19th century, then the greatest empire the world had ever known, but that the Irish played chess. And indeed, they even said that the Irish invented chess. Mm. So it was claimed, for example, that the 32 pieces of a chessboard were designed to replicate the 32 counties of Ireland. Now, none of these 32 counties existed in all this. So my point is here that there is nationalist invention in the 19th century around things to do with sport. And this happened with hurling. Mm. Because in these ancient Irish manuscripts, mentions of stick and ball games and of games in general, as Angela Gleeson has shown, when they're translated, they are all translated as hurling. So every game that where people hit a ball with a stick is known as, as, is translated across as hurling. Now that's really problematic. Yeah. And number one, and number two, even if they were all hurling, we don't have any descriptions of what the game was played. So it is wrong to imagine that this was just 15 on 15 yeah. on a beautiful pitch with set rules and that solo and the ball up around the pitch. Yeah, because I mean, around the world, anyone who has a stick and sees a ball does one thing with that stick. I mean, they're playing baseball in the streets of New York. They're, uh, I'm sure the beginnings of cricket are happening. So to just call it all hurling is a bit of an overstep, I would think. You go back to panels from, from, Greek, from Greece and Rome from 2,000 and 3,000 years ago. Yeah. You see etchings of people playing with stick and ball. You see the, the North American Indians at it. You see the Berbers at it in the desert of, of, of North Africa. You see it all across the Far East. There is any society, not alone do we have a record for sport, but in which there is a stick and a ball, people play stick and ball games. Lacrosse in, in North America, the, the, the Aztec Indians, and so on. Mm. It just happens. And, and actually... It's, it's um, one of those shared things between this idea of hitting a ball with a stick between Britain and Ireland, and you can see it with Shinty in Scotland, and you see it with hockey in England. It just took a local form here. So Ireland is under uh, British rule. Uh, I'm curious, to what extent at this stage, and we're kind of charting this period now, maybe the two, three, four hundred years uh, before 1800, where we will park this conversation, to what extent is the crown, is the state, whatever the state was across that period, getting involved in the regulation of sport on the island of Ireland? Yeah, it's, it's not like, obviously, it's not like a modern period where the state regulates sporting organisations, funds sporting organisations and sits within a culture and feels and helps to support national teams. It's not like that. It works in a, in a, in a different way depending on the period. So if you look again at the 1360s, people may have heard of the Statute of Kilkenny, where um, the, the, the English state, having been present in Ireland since the late 12th century, mm. saw that its colony here was under pressure, that the English who arrived here were adopting Irish ways of marriage and of language and sport and culture and music, and attempted to stop that. So they tried to ban hurling. Uh, through the Statute of Kilkenny and with the playing of it in the Pale. Now, interestingly, we see that as an attack upon Ireland, but that same, um, that same uh, King Edward had, the previous year, banned hockey, had banned handball, uh, had banned various other ball games and cockfighting in England. So this was a state trying to impose its control over what it saw as frivolous pastimes, often because they involved gambling. Now, what makes it interesting is you see things like this happening again and again, where the elite of society try and control the sports as played by the great bulk of society, all the while 
playing those sports themselves. And so you see various kings of England as, and queens as, as, as sport lovers. I, I suppose a great example is King Henry VIII, who, before he became incredibly corpulent, was loved hunting. And it's actually said when he met Francois I at Calais in 1520, that the two men wrestled in a, in, in a tent before uh, coming to, to an agreement on what they did. And even in the 1530s, uh, King Henry VIII, in 1532, they had a bowling green laid out in Whitehall, where he also, by the way, had a cockpit um, established in the place. But in the bowling green that he had laid out, he lost 32 pounds in, uh, in, in, in the 1530s, and Anne Boleyn lost 12 the following month. Uh, so this is something sport is within the culture yeah. of royal households. And then they try and control it outside the culture, but with great difficulty at all times. Right, okay. So do as I say, not as I do. And was the, was the reason they were trying to control it? You said gambling. That was their big issue when they saw it as frivolous. Gambling, it's, it's the state increasingly got involved with sport as we moved towards 1800. And it tried to suppress sporting events for different reasons. Yeah. So partly it's to do with gambling and their view was that well it's okay for us to gamble we've plenty of money but if we're, if we're an elite of society but for the broad populace it's not a good thing number one number two in no particular order number two there is um a desire to keep sundays sacred there is a desire from particularly from the middle of the 17th century onwards to keep holy the sabbath and this involved trying to suppress all sport that is being played on sundays now the right. problem with that was there was football being played in the Phoenix Park and hurling being played on grounds all around the countryside. There were cockfighting taking place in various things. There were horse races and so on. So this became a major battle. And number three, the story of sport, always and ever, when it, particularly when it appended to fairs and holy days and pattern days, was sport fitted really nicely in beside drinking, uh, all manner of licentiousness. And when you put drink, sport and a huge crowd together, you often got violence. So the idea was to okay. try and stop the violence. And number four, of course, the British presence in Ireland and the English presence in Ireland was incredibly contested and sporting events were also used to promote sedition. So the idea was that people who wished to overthrow the English throne were beginning, were using sporting events as cover for meetings. Mm. And that also led to certain events being suppressed by the English state because of that. Okay, and then just a final one on that. Presumably they couldn't have been that successful in their efforts to try and suppress these events because they seem to flourish. Is it that the constabulary begin to just turn a blind eye because they realise, well, look, we're not going to stop this no matter how hard we try, or, or did they manage to suppress quite a bit? Well, for, for, for the first point to make, I suppose, is that policing is very much a modern, uh, a modern idea. So you had to bring the army out to stop people playing, playing right, okay. football in the, in, the, in the Phoenix Park in the 1770s. But the idea of policing is something that really emerged in the second and third decades of the, of the 19th century in Ireland, number one. Number two, stop, we even know in our world that stopping people from playing banned sports is, remains impossible. Look at the cockfighting that continues in Ireland as a great example. Of, of how people managed to find their ways. Like cockfighting was banned um, 180 years ago uh, in, this, in this country, and it still continues, albeit in the marginal presence. So stopping, stopping people doing these things is not easy. As we move towards 1800, uh, from 1750 to 1800, that is a huge period. I mean, you know, there's, there's that old quote that has been doing the rounds in the last couple of days that decades can happen in years sometimes and nothing happens. I've mangled the quote, but you get me. So a lot happens between 1750 and 1800. 
and not least popula population growth, urbanization. I think in the notes you sent on, did we go from 3 million to 5 million on the island? Urban centers blossom. And this is a time where the clubs begin to come into existence. Yeah, again, it comes back to that basic point of sport reflecting society. And if you think about it, you, you, you began by talking about early Christian Ireland and where people lived and how many people there were. And if you look at it, there were half a million people living in early Christian Ireland in rats around the countryside. And if you move on then, it, it was growing until the mid-14th century when the Black Death arrived in the middle of the 14th century and wiped out a third of the population. So you move on then to... 1700s, 1750, 1800s, between 1750. In 1750, the population was, we'll say, in and around 3 million, but that's difficult. And there had been a really significant famine in Ireland in the middle of the 18th century, just before that. It's one of those forgotten things in, in, in Irish history, largely because the famine of the 19th century was, was worse, although it's, it's arguable that per head of population, the, the, the one in the middle of the 18th century w w was, was worse. Um, so, but the population recovered between 1750 and 1800. And it's not just that it recovered, it is also where it recovered. So you get the development of more so of towns and of, and of urban life. And you get a change in the way people begin to organise sport. It starts really, really slowly across, across Ireland. And it reflects what's happening in England. So you can see it, for example, one of the great exemplars of the modern world is the foundation of clubs. It's called associational culture, basically. And the idea is that people begin to band themselves into clubs to do whatever it is that they like doing. So you could have a flower arranging club or you could have a reading club and so on. And now initially these were the preserve of, of the elite and then uh, people of, who are more moneyed and then ultimately at the end of the 19th century, was hugely democratized. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that through soccer clubs and GA clubs in a couple of weeks' time. But in the beginning, it was very, very small numbers. And the, great, the, the first sports club in Ireland is, 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 is the Royal Yacht Club of Cork. A, a brilliant history of it written by Alicia St. Leisure, documented history from 1720 onwards. And what it is, is about a group of people the elite of Cork society and of Munster society who come together to sail boats with each other in the harbour in Cork and to stage a regatta on, on any given year. And it's from that moment that you can see in different sports the establishment of clubs uh, around the countryside. It begins in hunting later on, which is a massive sport for the elite of society. It begins in, in horse racing. And then it moves out from that into golf clubs, though not in Ireland until the 1800s, and tennis clubs, rackets clubs, and ultimately cricket clubs. Mm. So not to steal your headline, but I saw in, in the notes you sent on, uh, globally across the 1700s, 25,000 sporting clubs established. 25,000 clubs in general, not just sporting not clubs. Not just sporting. So, okay. so, but increasingly as time went on, there were more and more clubs. And a great example of this is golf and the emergence of golf in the north of, of, of Scotland during those years. And it, it came from businessmen in Edinburgh who begin to take a stick and a ball out to this traditional game that's being played along the coast on that land around Edinburgh and around Glasgow. Hurling. It's called hurling. Yeah, yeah. They hit a, hit a ball towards a stationary object and then a hole. And the idea is to put the ball into a hole and it becomes associated with commerce. And they found an exclusive club 
for themselves and they write rules of that for that club and they right. put in a, a president and they put in a secretary and you have to pay a subscription and you have to be voted into the club. So this is exclusivity. And what do they do? They go out there and they make deals and they walk around on this ground and they lay out a track for themselves. Right. So right from the beginning, golf was commerce and doing deals on the course and exclusive. It is rooted in this, in this society of merchants. Scotland was thriving in the 1700s. Scotland was an incredibly prosperous place. And again, fundamental to the, to the, to the growth of uh, the British Empire was what was happening in Scotland in its merchants and in its scientists and everything that came from there. But there was wealth and genuine wealth in, in Edinburgh and, and in Glasgow. And those men came together and they struck deals and they walked the course and they socialized together. And it became, it became a thing where sport and commerce and class were mm. bound together uh, during this period. And it be- began, it made an initial foray into Ireland in Bray in, 70, in the 1760s. Um, Edward Gibson wrote in his book on early Irish golf that there was golf being played in the 1760s in, in, in Bray. Now, it seemed to have disappeared, and it's really only from the 1880s that golf took off in, in Ireland, but, and it remained largely the preferred preserve of Scotland until the 19th century. All oh, right, okay. Well, so it wasn't an instant spread. Because, so you, you said uh, the gentlemen of Edinburgh got together in 1744. St. Andrews was 1766, which, which later became the RNA as we know it. Yes, and they ultimately established their writ all across the place. I went there last year, actually, and went through the records of, of yeah. the RNA and, and the, the old minute books and saw the old clubs there. And it is genuinely, it's an extraordinary place to go and to go and see it was unbelievably packed with tourists largely american tourists who all of which were in a lottery trying to play the saint andrews mm. uh, saint andrews course um, i played the putting course beside it uh, <laughs> it was it was um, it was really really interesting place to, uh, to 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 see it and in the middle of it are these minute books these bound minute books and letters from these guys who wrote the original rules of of golf and it's, it's, it's a mixture of being extraordinarily impressed by what they did and also kind of understanding the elitism and the snobbery that they also wrapped around their game. And it's, it's that t- tension between those two things when you look at golf. Mm, yeah. It is the most amazing course and, and picturesque and so full of history and, and just right in the town. If you get a chance to go, it's highly recommended. There was one thing you sent on which I wanted to just touch on uh, briefly if we can. And I suppose this ties in with your point that changes in society are merely uh, reflected in sport as opposed to sport necessarily driving things on. But you said coffee houses uh, start to spring up. Is it around this time in Ireland? Oh, yeah. We, we again, like to say that we, we think everything we do is new and the proliferation of coffee in this, in this state now, as, as is evidenced across the world, is... Is clear. This was already happening in, in, in the 1700s. And if you look at Ireland in, in, in the 1700s, you can see small towns, well, really villages, such as Ennis, had their coffee house. And coffee houses were really important to the establishment of, of clubs. And if you look at it in Kildare, uh, the coffee house in Kildare was the central point for the establishment of a turf club in Ireland, which eventually, imitating what was happening in England, where the jockey club and ran sport and ran organized horse racing in that state. So it was 
that a coffee house in Kildare became the venue for the turf club to establish its control over horse racing in Ireland. Now, of course, people have raced horses in Ireland against each other for as long as people have had horses. Yeah. There were great traditions all the way through history up to the 1700s of people racing horses. And there were great public spectacles. And to go to the races in Ireland was an incredible day out in, 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 the, 17, in the 1700s. And there were races at every significant town in Ireland. But what happened after the establishment of the Turf Club in, in a coffee shop in Kildare, established by the elite of Eastern society, they began to take control of racing in the Curra, first of all. And then it spread out from the Curra slowly, surely. It took decades, and there were still people who denied and refused the writ of it, but it became really useful because horse racing has almost always taken place for money. And when in the modern period, people race for prizes and for contests. And when you have races for prizes and contests, you need rules. And even when there are rules established on a local level, there can be disputes over those rules. And people look to the turf club increasingly from towns and villages across Ireland for um, decision on, on their rules. And eventually, slowly, surely, this idea of stewarding from the centre spread mm. across Ireland mm. in the 1700s and into the 1800s. So to round all this off, and we started with medieval Ireland and kind of fifth century or so, what's our conclusion as we hit 1800? It, it seems from what you're saying, like we're starting to hit some fairly uh, familiar patterns and things like clubs being established that have even survived to this day. It's, it seems that by 1800, we're, 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 sport is really starting to organize itself. You can see the glimpses of our modern sporting world there in 1800. You can see, first of all, what is, it's clear that sport is part of the everyday. Mm. It's part of what people do in terms of play, in terms of what people playing games, the different types of games they play, their interesting competition, and all of that, it's present. What you don't have yet, though, is the formally organized structures, or you don't have the deep commercialization. And those two things are the engine that drives sport after 100, after 1800. And there's a third aspect which must be uh, considered, and that is the changing nature of the state and of society and how state, the state begins to attempt more and more to control how people behave. And that ultimately obliterates certain aspects of traditional sport, which we will talk about, I suppose, next week. Uh, and it is... It, is, it obliterates, for example, bull baiting and other sports like that, and it promotes others. So three things basically change everything we have. But this idea of play is everywhere to be seen in 1800. Okay, excellent. Uh, Paul Rouse, that is week two done and dusted. My thanks to you. Thanks a million, Joe. Thank you. The Off The Ball podcast on OTB Sports Radio, Ireland's first and only sports radio station.